remember your manners. Has anyone told you that before? Have you, has anyone ever uh, said that to you? Uh, I can't tell you how many times as a kid I was told by my parents, remember your manners. Uh, I, I think that's kind of like a, a rite of passage, isn't it? At, at some point in life, every child will hear their parents say, remember your manners. And that often happens at the table, right? We're especially told to remember your table manners. Now, one of the interesting things that our world is going through right now is this collective remembering of our manners. After at least a year of largely dining by ourselves, we have, uh, as a society, experienced our collective table manners sort of slump. One writer She's a food writer, so I'm imagining this is a particularly important issue for her. She described the scene around her dinner table on an average evening like this. We scarf down dinner in minutes. Crumbs get stuck in my husband's goatee. Sauce dribbles onto his sweatshirt, which desperately needs a wash after having been worn three days in a row. I've watched him discover stale tortilla chips between sofa cushions, and toss them into his mouth without a second thought. He matter-of-factly likens himself to the family dog. Actually, we don't have a family dog. Maybe some of you have stories like this from your own life. When we haven't dined with people for a while, we forget our manners, and we need to then relearn them. Well, the same thing applies at church. In a few weeks... Like we've talked about, like our brother Steve talked about, we are going to be resuming the Lord's Supper on Sunday mornings. And as Elder Steve said, the Lord's Supper is a meal with each other and with God. And so it's even more important that we inspect our spiritual table manners, maybe things that we've forgotten along the way, like we heard in the Confession of Faith, and like we're about to hear in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and you can begin turning there in your Bibles if you want, It's really important for us to prepare for the Lord's Supper. So we should ask that question. How can we relearn some of these spiritual table manners so that we can be together at the table without offense? How can we properly prepare for the Lord's Supper? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us. Much like a parent correcting a child about table manners, the Apostle Paul corrects the Corinthian church about their horrible conduct at the Lord's table, and theirs was far worse, far more damaging than just using a shirt as a napkin. Actually, their behavior at the table was wrecking their worship and harming other believers. And so he gives the Corinthians three lessons. Three lessons on spiritual table manners so that they can actually enjoy God's blessing when they come together at the table. And here are the three lessons that we're, we'll learn from today's text. Here is how to prepare for the table together. First, you need to know your temptation. Know your temptation. Second, you need to meditate on the meal. Meditate on the meal. And third, make the change. We need to make the change. And so, brothers and sisters, with that in mind, please turn your attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can find it on page 958 if you're using your pew Bible. We're going to be reading verses 17 through 34 
Please hear now God's holy word to us. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized when you come together is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord... What I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are... Uh, humbled to sit under your word this morning, but also uplifted at the good news of the gospel that it contains. And so I pray even now that your spirit would be preparing our hearts. I ask that you would speak to us through this word, that you would guard me and my mouth and my words, and that you would guard all of us in our hearts, that we would be ready to hear from you. Help us to prepare for the joyous celebration of the supper that we'll take in a couple of weeks and bless us as a church. Uh, please help us to prepare as a body so that we could eat and drink together and know your favor. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. So here's our first lesson as we prepare for the table. Know your temptations. You need to know your temptations as you prepare for coming to the table. It is really clear as we study this passage that the Corinthians had slumped into some really bad habits. Before they were Christians, they were a proud and divided people. 
When you study the book of Corinthians, you get a a sense of what Corinthian culture was like. The people there reveled in superiority and status. And so unfortunately, when they came to the table, they brought those old habits back with them and the meal was ruined. As Paul says, their coming together was actually even more harmful. They were not aware of their temptations. And so they fell headlong into sin. In verses 17 through 22, Paul calls out specifically three of their temptations, these sinful practices that were actively poisoning the fellowship. And here are the three sinful practices, the three temptations that Paul calls out. Schism, exclusion, and selfish choices. In verse 18, Paul says that schism is poisoning the church. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. At first blush, that might not seem like that bad of a thing. I don't know what's the big deal. There's divisions in every group. I mean, if we ask all of you here to represent your favorite sports team on a Sunday morning, We would have a lot of different divisions in the church, right? You would see a lot of kind of different sports and lots of different teams on display. So what's the big deal about division? Well, here's the problem. This division that Paul is talking about is spiritually destructive to the church. These are schisms that are happening within the church. The word that Paul uses for division is a violent word. It's a very traumatic word. It literally means something being ripped away from something else, something that is being torn. And so the Corinthians are ripping their relationships to shreds. John Calvin says that schism is an alienation of affection. An alienation of affection. It's a a rip, a gash at the very heart of the church, our love for each other. And then this alienation of affection led to the second sin, which was exclusion. Exclusion is the second sin that's happening in the church. In verse 19, Paul talks about factions in the church. And a, a faction, the the thing that Paul's talking about there, a faction is a group of people that fostered a shared sense of identity based on shared beliefs and shared customs. We could think about the Pharisees or the Sadducees as being factions within Judaism at the time. Now, Paul is realistic. He gets that factions are in some ways a part of life as a result of sin So there are probably going to be factions among the different people, but what he says is that these factions in the church are actually opportunities to overcome sin. There are actually opportunities to overcome that that temptation to sequester ourselves into only like-minded people. We are to prove our true faith by overcoming it, overcoming that temptation. But unfortunately, the Corinthians had not overcome the temptation. They actually got sucked into the factions, and that is a huge problem because by nature, factions are exclusive. They get their power from excluding others. We could think of the kind of humorous book from Dr. Seuss about the Sneetches. You know this story, hopefully some of you? Some of the Sneetches had stars on their bellies, and they ruled the beaches by excluding all the other sneetches who didn't have stars on their bellies. Factions exclude others. They gain power from shoving other people away, and these factions were in the church. The Christians were not unified by their shared salvation in Christ, as Steve has already told us this morning. That is our uniting force. 
We gain our power by our unity in Christ. But what they were trying to do was set some other secondary bar up in order to exclude others. And then that exclusivity allowed them to make some really selfish choices. Verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So in this meal, the wealthy Christians brought the food for the feast. But instead of waiting for the poorer brothers and sisters in Christ to join them, the rich Christians just went ahead and started eating. It was just too inconvenient to wait for those other people to come and join. So we're just going to go ahead with our meal. And so when the poorer Christians showed up, all the food was gone. It would have been a humiliating, humbling experience for these other brothers and sisters and harmful. They remained hungry because of some very selfish choices uh, that other Christians were making. Schism, exclusivity, selfish choices. Calvin sums up the state of the church like this. Everyone was so much taken up with his own interests that he was not prepared to accommodate himself to others. He was not prepared to accommodate himself to others. They were swallowed up by their temptations. And so the first step for us as we prepare to come to the table is to know which temptations you might fall into. What Bad habits, what manners, what practices from your old way of life might come back to haunt you as you try to come to the table. Now, maybe now's the time for some plain talk. We've had a lot of questions about our COVID policies here at church, and I've been asked many times uh, about the session's policies, is this not divisive? And my answer is, is something to the effect of this, it doesn't have to be unless we let it be. It doesn't have to be divisive unless we let it be divisive. The session has chosen this path to actually accommodate as many people as possible on an important but ultimately secondary issue. We are trying to make as much room as possible for as many people as possible because we are united in Christ. But I recognize that it highlights our differences still, and so because our differences are highlighted, it's really important that we pay attention to ourselves. Because it is shockingly easy for difference to harden into division and separation. So we really, really need to be aware of our temptations. We, as a church, will be tempted toward schism, especially at a time where we've intentionally kept some distance from each other. It is really easy for our love to be fractured from things like suspicion or assumptions or old wounds. We see someone doing something from afar. We suspect their motives. We assume we know the real reason why they're doing something. And if we have old wounds that haven't really healed yet, then our assumptions and suspicions tend to be worse. We'll also be tempted towards exclusivity and exclusion. Our culture that we live in, that we have been saved from, is marked by a great sense of tribalism. Just generally, in American culture, we tend to only listen to and hang out with the people that think and act like we do, and when people disagree with us, we tend to dismiss them without giving them a chance to explain. That's the culture. 
But we can't be like that in the church. And so if you find yourself only talking to people who agree with you, or you find yourself only being able to hang out with people that agree with you, or especially if you find yourself avoiding people that don't agree with you, then you need to watch out because you are giving in to exclusivity and exclusion. And we will be tempted toward making selfish choices. And I want to say this gently, uh, because many of us have good reasons for doing what we're doing. So measure what I'm about to say by your own circumstances and the, the, the conscience that God has given you. But let me gently say that if you are not regularly coming to church based on inconvenience uh, or a little bit of discomfort, then you're probably making a selfish choice. Uh, what's likely happening is that you're putting your, uh, your convenience above the needs of the rest of the church. Uh, and, and don't do that, because we need you. We need every single one of you. We need you to be here. We need your singing in worship. We need uh, our church building filled with the congregation of the people. We need you to sing. We need you to worship together. We need your presence for the encouragement of each other. We need you to welcome other people into our worship. So don't let the, don't let the convenience of the live stream lure you into making a selfish choice. This season does not have to be divisive if we accommodate ourselves to each other, like the opposite of what Calvin said about the church in Corinth. And so prepare for the table by knowing your temptations, and then meditate on the table. Meditate on the meal that we'll have together in the effort to reclaim our lost manners. Sometimes we just need a little bit of inspiration. If you're invited to a party and you're reluctant to go, but then you hear about an amazing meal that's going to be there, or some really important person that you would really like to get to know, then we get excited about going, and there's more motivation for us to do the necessary things to get there. And in the same way, we can prepare for the Lord's Supper by meditating on the meal. Verses 23 through 26 in our passage tell us exactly how wonderful the Lord's Supper is. It is a sacramental meal for the gathered people with amazing benefits. And let's break that down as we look at it in the text. This is a sacramental meal. This is not a meal that's meant to feed your stomach. Like Paul says in verse 34, if you're hungry, eat ahead of time. This is food for your soul. These are the words of Christ Jesus saying in this text that he is going to feed you with his very body and his very blood, not in the elements themselves, but through the Spirit. He is nourishing our souls with the gospel about himself. In the words of one theologian, the Lord's Supper is a visible sermon. It's a visible sermon, and Christ is the one preaching. These are his words that he gave us to use. Jesus is preaching to you from the table, feeding you with himself, proclaiming to you that he loves you. And listen to what Paul says one chapter earlier, if we flip back in our Bibles to chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? 
The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So at the table, we're actively communing with Jesus. And so two things are actually happening when we take the Lord's Supper together. It's an amazing meal. Jesus comes down to us in an amazing act of grace, and simultaneously, Jesus raises us up to him in a tremendous amount of, or tremendous act of glorification that he gives to us. Through the Spirit, at the Lord's Supper, Jesus is down here with us, and through the Spirit, we are up there in heaven with him. We have communion with Jesus. What an amazing host we have. What an amazing meal. It's an incredible sacramental meal for the gathered people. Verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. These are plural verbs. Paul is saying when y'all come together to do this, this is for the gathered people. And he confirms that in verses 34 through, 33 and 34. When you come together, when you come together, do it like this. Being together is the only proper way to take the Lord's Supper. You can't do it alone because God didn't just save you individually. God saved you into the church. Like Paul says again in chapter 10, verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this is for the gathered people, and it has amazing benefits. Think about it. Whenever you share a meal with friends, your friendship grows. And so what's on offer for us? is a meal with God and a meal with his church. And so our friendship with God will grow as we take the Lord's Supper, and therefore our friendship with the church will also grow. The Lord's Supper is an incredible gift. And so you need to prepare for it by stoking your hunger for it. You can't come to this amazing meal in kind of a ho-hum sort of way. No, it demands desire. We should want this, and so cultivate that desire by meditating on the meal. Maybe some of you, it's been so long that you don't necessarily care about communion anymore, and if that's you, spend some time over the next couple of weeks pondering the amazing mystery of this sacramental meal. It is the best meal with the best host, God himself, Jesus, hosting us at his table. It's the best thing for us, and he invites us with the company of the saints, which is actually the best company that we could have. This is a meal that you need. Now again, it is for the gathered people, and that means you need to be here for it. And that's all the more reason, there's all the more pressure on us to be accommodating ourselves to each other here. Now this is a change from the past year. Previously, we've said that you can worship with us from home, and that is still true. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is still true. You can worship from home with us, but you can't take the Lord's Supper at home. 
And so please, if you're not here during that time, please don't get out the bread and the wine on your own at home. If you're at home, please use that time to reflect on the sermon and hear God speaking to you. Use that time for reflection. Don't worry. The Spirit is still with you. We think that the sacrament is a means of grace, and we think that the sermon is a means of grace too, so Jesus is still with you. Uh, But for the communion, for the Lord's Supper itself, please come to church. And if for some reason you can't, please let us know so that we can take the church to you, so that you are not left out. This is the meal for the gathered people. We want everyone to be able to have access to this meal. It's a sacramental meal for the gathered people, and it has amazing benefits. If you feel like your affections for God and for his people have grown cold, the supper is good medicine for your soul. God will breathe life into your heart as you commune with Christ at his table. The supper is an amazing gift. It is a privilege to have it. And so stoke your hunger. Prepare for the Lord's Supper by meditating on the meal. And then there's just one last lesson for us to learn from our text. One last step to our preparations, make the change. Make the change. That's what we hear in verses 27 through 34. Don't continue to walk in sin, but make the change to a godly way of life. Like we saw last week in the book of Malachi, God wants consistency in our worship. God doesn't like it when we say one thing and then do another. And that's exactly the problem that's happening in the Corinthian church at this time. They say they're taking the Lord's Supper, and then they're turning around and doing everything that denies the actual Lord's Supper by their actions. If the Supper is a visible sermon about the gospel, then our actions need to accord with the gospel. That's what it means to eat and drink in a worthy manner. And so Paul says, examine yourselves, discern the body, eat the right way, make the change. And here's how you make the change. You repent. Repentance is how you make the change. Verses 28 through 29, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You cannot eat the Lord's Supper if you are stuck in unrepentant sin. That's like coming to dinner with a king uh, with your arms folded and your head shaking and this resistance to following the rules. Well, that's not going to work. And it certainly doesn't work with God. God brings judgment on people who are going to do that, like we hear in our text. Now, at its most basic, what it means is that you can't take the Lord's Supper if you're not a Christian. Charles Spurgeon says that the Lord's Supper is a spiritual meal for spiritual people. And so if you're not a Christian, please, during that time in the service, please don't take the elements because those elements will not save you. But don't turn away either. Don't go away empty-handed. Repent. If you're not a Christian, repent. Become a Christian by trusting in Christ. Turn away from your sins and find true life in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, then still examine your hearts. What about those temptations? What about the ways that you haven't loved God with your whole heart? 
or loved your neighbor as yourself. Admit you're failing. Apologize to the Lord and stop doing it. Repent. Don't come to the table unwilling to repent. Just to be clear, this is asking for repentance, not perfection. In fact, Paul assumes that we won't do this perfectly. Listen to verses 31 and 32. If we judged ourselves truly, sort of perfectly, if we could conduct ourselves perfectly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, assuming that there is something that God is going to reveal in our hearts, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Christians are still going to struggle with sin, but the difference is that when God points out our sin, we repent. Uh, We are willing to be corrected. Remember, this is a meal of grace. It's not a performative dinner party. It's not like you, you can wash yourself of your sin and put on your best clothes and then just hope that you get in the door. No, this is a meal for sinners. It's a meal of grace, but it's a meal for sinners who are willing to repent because they love Jesus. And after we repent, then we need to reconcile with others. We need to reconcile with other people. That's the second part of making the change. When we're at, once we're at peace with God, then we need to be at peace with each other. In verse 29, Paul says that we need to discern the body. And that phrase, discern the body, means two things at once. It's about receiving the body of Christ through faith as we truly take of the element in faith and receive spiritually the benefits of Christ. That's discerning the body of Christ. And it's also about embracing the body of Christ, which is the church. If we take the bread of unity, we must live in unity. Like we said in the Confession of Faith, part of preparation is brotherly love and forgiveness. And so make the change. You've got some time. We wanted to give a long runway for when we take the Lord's Supper next so that you have time to make the change. Take some time over the next three weeks to really reflect and repent and reconcile. Maybe God will show you a particular sin in your life that you need to repent of. Maybe God will show you a particular person that you need to reconcile with. Make the change. Repent. Reconcile so that you can eat in a manner worthy of the body of Christ. You might be surprised at what you find during this time of preparation. Uh, Often when I take time to be alone with the Lord, especially for an extended period of time, I find unexpected emotions rising to the surface. Sometimes I find myself sitting before the Lord uh, with deep sadness and lament coming up over something that I didn't know that I was upset about. Sometimes I find myself sitting before the Lord with great anger about what's going on in the world or even anger at God, and he welcomes us to sit with him in those emotions. Sometimes as I sit with God, I find myself overwhelmed with inexpressible joy. Sometimes a person comes to mind, and I realize that I have wronged that person, and I need to go apologize. Sometimes I realize in those moments that I have been wronged, and I need to forgive, and I need to ask God for the strength and courage to do that. Now, whatever happens in this time of examination, please do examine yourselves over the next couple of weeks. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of whatever kind of comes up, boils out of your heart before the Lord. The only thing that's truly dangerous is not caring. 
Because if you don't care, you can't repent. But if you find yourself faced, as you take an honest look at your soul, if you find yourself faced with deep sin or painful brokenness in your life and you want God's help, then the supper is the place for you. It is the Lord's table. Paul's talking about Jesus. It is Jesus' table and Jesus' meal. Jesus welcomes repentant sinners to himself. And so if you are tired of your sin and you are trying to love the church, come to Jesus and be fed by him. So how can we brush up on our table manners? We need to know our temptations. What sort of old practices are going to haunt us as we try to prepare for the table or as we come in fellowship? What sort of old habits might poison our fellowship? Know your temptations. And then meditate on the meal. Remember what an amazing blessing the Lord's Supper is to us and make the change. Make the change. Examine your life. Repent of your sin. Reconcile with your church. What happens when we do this? What's the effect of such preparation on our lives? Well, the place uh, that was fraught with division actually becomes the place of healing. That's what happens. The Lord's Supper becomes a place of healing. Instead of bad manners and bored recipients and hard hearts, the Lord's Supper shines forth with the grace of Christ as we receive his grace afresh and as we extend that grace to each other. There's a novel called A Pattern of Wounds. It's about this battle-hardened, skeptical detective. And at the end of the novel, uh, Roland March finally goes to church with his wife. Uh, he visits the church that has become a really important part of her life. She has recently rediscovered her faith and is filled with joy. And he ends up attending church with her. And when it comes time for communion, he watches his wife go forward with the rest of the congregants to receive the sacrament together. And he says this, I watched them all, the men and women, old and young, white and black and brown, perhaps with nothing in common but this. It's enough to make me forget the television hucksters and the smiling feel-good hypocrites, enough that I can almost see why she takes comfort being here. That's what the table is about. In a world of hatred, exclusivity, selfish choices, the simple act of coming to the table together is a profoundly countercultural practice. It is a beautiful portrayal of the gospel in action. It is food for our hungry souls. It is a place of comfort. And so let's prepare well. Let's prepare for it well so that we can enjoy the blessing of God together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. We thank you for the means of grace and for speaking to us and nourishing us through this word. We praise you for the sacrament of grace, the Lord's Supper. We pray that you would give us uh, a, a tender heart towards you over the next couple of weeks that we would prepare well for it. And we pray for your healing presence in our church as we continue to come back together after a trying season. Lord God, be with us, we pray. Heal us. Any divisions that are present, Lord, we pray that you would put those 
to rest, that you would make us united as a church and as a group so that we could shine forth your grace to the rest of the watching world and so that others could see why we take comfort being here as we who are a diverse people have this in common. So we pray, Lord, that you would be with us. Be glorified in our church. Lift us up to heaven through the Spirit and dwell with us here so that we would know your presence. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.